Welcome to a form of acknowledgement, homilies, teachings, and reflections with Father Jeremiah Volman, an Orthodox Christian priest, exploring the theanthropic life, the intersection between the created and the uncreated, the human and the divine. Let us love one another, that with one accord we may confess. the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Amen. Christ is in our midst. He is Thank you. Beloved in Christ, church school started today, that, so that means we have a few more people in Orthros in the morning, so it's been good to worship and pray with those who came earlier this morning. It reminded me of something I read just this week. I've been reading the lives of the elders of the Optina Monastery in Russia, a famous monastery that had, that's known for its wise elders. I just finished reading the life of Elder Moses of Optina, and he was trying to encourage the brethren to come to the Orthros service. And he said, we should all go to Orthros because during Orthros, we offer ourselves to God. And then during the liturgy that follows, Christ offers himself to us. So a little encouragement for those who maybe are struggling to come to bring your children to your church school. And those who have been thinking about it but maybe haven't come yet. Maybe you could make a little effort to come and join us. If not every time, or not for the whole service, for part of it. It's a beautiful service, and it's always a proclamation of the resurrection on Sunday morning. Another beautiful thing that came up this week is uh, several people mentioned a reaction to the homily from last week, where we talked about loving your enemies. And it seems like we can't escape this theme because there it is again in today's gospel reading. I didn't plan it that way, but God did. I spoke about the teaching of St. Silouan, who said the, the height of ortho the Orthodox Christian life is to love your enemies. And some people in our conversations this week said, well, Father, if we love our enemies, then doesn't that mean we don't have any enemies? And that's exactly right, actually. That is the point. You could say it's kind of a, it's a rhetorical statement in a way to say, love your enemies like those who would be your enemies, or those who stand in opposition to you, who make you an enemy, who treat you like an enemy. Love them anyway. Love them. The Lord was teaching to us this morning from the Gospel of Luke about that. He says, it's easy to love people who love you in return. And the question is then, is that even love really, in a way? 
In speaking of marriage, a lot of the time when catechizing and preparing people for their marriages, I remind them that marriage isn't just a mutually beneficial agreement where two people come together and they both enjoy something. They both do it because they get, each one is convinced that he or she is getting the better end of the deal, the most pleasure, the most satisfaction, and so on. People who go into it that way, thinking that they're going to get the most enjoyment out of it, are going to be surprised. And either they're going to learn what love really is, that marriage affords you the opportunity to go forth from yourself for the sake of another, or face the real crisis of what it means to be in a true relationship with another human being created in God's image. Some people from their marriage, they say, I know what God means when he says, love your enemies. Uh, Oops. Um, Forgive me. But then we fix that. We correct that. By by seeking to be healed of whatever animosity that we would have toward our spouse. And even really, I like to say even toward ourselves, I mean, toward our conscience and being at odds with ourselves. One of the things that makes it difficult to love is our tendency to judge others. And I'd like to speak a little bit about that. Tie in what are kind of the themes of both the epistle reading, where God says, we're the temple of the living God. And he talks about cleansing yourself and making holiness perfect in the fear of God, along with the gospel reading that talks about loving your enemies. For some reason, I was moved to share one of my favorite little stories from the writings of St. Dorotheus of Gaza, who reposed in the year 565, so fairly, fairly early saint of the church. The story goes like this. I remember once hearing the following story. A slave ship put in at a certain port where there lived a holy virgin who was in earnest about her spiritual life. Someone who was living like a woman living like a monastic life. When she learned about the arrival of the ship, she was glad for she wanted to buy a small serving maid for herself. She thought to herself, I will take her into my home and bring her up in my way of life so that she knows nothing of the evils of the world. So to pull someone basically out of slavery, adopt a young lady and raise her as her own in virtue. So she sent and inquired of the master of the ship and found that he had two small girls whom he thought would suit her, whereupon she gladly paid the price and took one of the children into her house. The master of the ship went away. He had not gone very far when the leader of a dancing troupe met him like gypsies. The man saw the other girl, paid the price and took her away. Two girls, one living with a holy virgin and one living with the leader of a dancing troupe in his gypsy clan, you could say. Which of us could give any judgment about this case? The holy virgin took one of these little ones to bring up in the fear of God to instruct her in every good work 
to teach her all that belongs to the monastic state and all the sweetness of the commandments of God. The other child was taken for the dancing troupe and trained in the works of the devil. What effects would this have but the ruin of her soul? What can we say about this frightful judgment? Here two little girls taken away from their parents by violence. Neither one knew where they came from. One is found in the hands of God and the other falls, as it seems, into the hands of the devil. Is it possible to say what God asks from the one, that what God asks from the one, he asks from the other? Surely not. Suppose they both fell into fornication or some other deadly sin. Is it possible that they both face the same judgment or that their fall is the same? How does it appear to the mind of God when one learns about the judgment and about the kingdom of God day and night while the other one knows nothing of it, never hears anything good, but only everything shameful, everything diabolical? Can God allow them to be examined by the same standard? A man can know nothing about God's judgments. He alone is the one who takes account of all and is able to judge the hearts of each one of us. He alone is our master. So that's the end of this story and this reflection by St. Dorotheus of Gaza. And of course, he's teaching us that we want to approach everyone from the vantage of our own judgment and our own perception that, of God's judgment upon other people. And we want to hold a kind of universal standard. We have a tendency to hold everyone to a universal standard of what I think is right or wrong and apply that to others. You could also, again, apply that to yourself. Easy to justify yourself in the ways that you would like to. Or beat yourself up for the things that you would like to blame yourself and beat yourself up for. Even despise yourself. If you're justifying yourself or despising yourself, again, you're trying to to deprive God of what is His right alone. And I'd like to explore a little bit why we criticize and judge others instead of loving them, instead of loving those who would be our enemies. Why do we want to judge or criticize others? And I have kind of a poignant line for you. We're going to go a little deep today. Why do we want to judge and criticize others? And the answer that keeps coming back to me is because we haven't truly received God's love. Because we haven't truly, because we've decided not to fully receive the transforming love of God. We've decided to filter it through our own preferences, through our own interpretation, on our own authority, and to turn it into something that we like it to be. Rather than receiving it as it is, the inscrutable and perfect love of God. Why do we want to judge and criticize others? Because we haven't truly received God's love. I'm not saying that you haven't tasted of it. I might also say that you, we haven't fully received it then. Fully. You've gotten a little taste of that sweet honey. It's like you've tasted the honey of God's love and you're pretending to know 
what the honeycomb tastes like and how the beehive operates. No, not until you're granted that understanding. Then you humbly, humbly speak the truth. I believe that we all struggle to truly believe that we can be loved. The more I confess people, the more I time, spend time with individuals, the more I sense this existential, this deep internal struggle that we have to truly believe that we can be loved unconditionally. Because we're used to not being loved unconditionally. We're used to being loved conditionally. And therefore, it's hard for us to believe that there is such a love out there. We have an abiding sense of our own brokenness, our own flaws, and of the stain, the sense of stain upon our souls. And therefore, I think we even resist accepting unconditional love. Our broken self-perception leaves us constantly bracing ourselves waiting for the affirmation of our flaw. And therefore, our resistance to the reviving love and being accepted. We expect to be mistreated. We've been hurt so many times. We expect to be mistreated. And then, as such, having braced ourselves, then in a way we come to thrive on the drama that comes with our imperfection. We even strive to provoke the disdain of others at times as a way of proving the hypocrisy of the world and our inability to be truly loved. Did you understand what I'm saying? We provoke the the disdain of others at times in order to validate this sense, this deep sense of unloveliness within me. And sometimes, again, sometimes we don't even know why we're doing it. We just know that it's frustrating and that it doesn't quite work. And that's part of the reason why the church is here and why I'm here, to help you understand what's going on, what this struggle is, and how the healing can take place. And then, as those who resist love, we can even prove our point by mistreating others. We prove our point by mistreating others. We see in the mistakes of others something deeply familiar And by expressing judgment of others, we are really expressing the frustration we have with ourselves. It requires much faith to believe that I'm loved. To really believe it, like not as someone who's trying to convince his or herself of something. We've all been there. You're saying it, but you don't seem like you really believe it. That's because it requires a lot of faith and not just knowledge. And it's not just a feeling It's a sensation, you might say. It's more than a belief. It's more than a feeling. It's something from God. It requires something called faith. Have you heard of faith? Faith is a great mystery and a gift of God to us to help us overcome what would be impossible for us to do ourselves. Something more powerful than knowledge and more difficult to acquire than knowledge. When I begin to believe, or better, to have faith, not only that God is love, not only that God's love is somehow directed at me, somehow directed at me, but that the love of God can enter into me, then, if I believe that the love of God can enter into me, then I come to understand what that means for me, that I must love in return. 
and in becoming and I become afraid to judge others to jump to conclusions about other people I who have come into contact with love itself how can I long for anything else in the lives of others than that they also know that they are loved truly loved by God This is where you don't even need to prove yourself to others by trying too hard to convince them of your love for them. It should come naturally and with time. But to participate in the love that God has for others, this is the great privilege. And when your heart is softened by coming into contact with the love of God, you become like the iron that's been placed in the fire. The church loves this metaphor. You become like that piece of iron that gets placed into the fire, imbued, overtaken, overwhelmed by the heat, taking on the property of the fire, becoming pliable, but not destroyed by the fire. That hot iron, red hot, purified, but not destroyed. And this is what should happen to us when we receive the coal of God's uncreated energy. Especially in Holy Communion. If we could understand what a great mystery this is for man to come into contact with God. If we truly considered it, we would tremble at the great wonder and say to one another after each liturgy, How did I just survive that? How is it possible that God could have met us today? And we're still alive. Even those who are not yet Orthodox, who are not yet receiving the Holy Mysteries, even to be present and witness the accomplishment of the Holy Mysteries. This is why in the early days of the church, those who were not receiving on any given Sunday would leave after the homily and the prayers for the catechumens. They would leave until... They were ready to receive the Holy Mysteries. What a great mystery and wonder it is. How did I just survive that? We would say, I came into contact with living flame and I was not consumed by it. I was not destroyed. But somehow I became a possessor of its properties. How could it be? And then with tears and a shudder, we would answer one another, with God all things are possible, even this. Are we willing to receive God's love? To allow ourselves to be touched by it? Is simultaneously to allow ourselves to be changed, to be shaped and formed, and unafraid to love in return? Yes, we've been afraid to love. And it's because we've been afraid to receive love. To be loved is to love in return. To be loved is to love in return. To be loved is to be awestruck at such a wonder that God loves me and will not disappoint as long as I don't try to continually sabotage His love and disprove it by my own efforts, which I often try to attribute to others. But rather, this is our calling. I want to wrap up with one of my favorite passages of the Old Testament from Isaiah. 
Imagine yourself encountering what Isaiah is, and you'll find yourself actually in the divine liturgy when you hear this passage. It begins like this. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Are you in church with me? Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth. And he said, Lo, this has touched your lips, taken away your iniquities. And purged away your sin. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am, send me. Send me, having been loved, that, as St. Paul says, I may become a temple of the Holy Spirit, that having been loved, I may become merciful even as my heavenly Father is merciful, that being loved, I might love in return. Amen.